Hello and welcome to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer podcast. This is episode 14. Today I will be talking about the murders of Jim and Vivian Gray and the case against their son, Anthony. My biggest source for this episode was the ID documentary, Kentucky Murder Mystery, The Trials of Anthony Gray. My other sources are Kentucky.com, WKYT, CaseLaw, FineLaw.com, News Graphic, and The Cinemaholic. As usual, all my sources will be in the show notes. Family members and friends are still in shock after Jim Gray and his wife Vivian are discovered shot to death in their home. This was no stranger to James and Vivian Gray. Uh, Can you describe his demeanor? At the time I was speaking with him, he didn't show any emotion. From the very beginning, Anthony Gray has maintained he's innocent. That he had nothing to do with his parents' murder. Did you kill your parents? No, sir. What did he say about his parents? He was going to get a gun and he said that he would like to kill his parents. So, you're admitting to killing your parents, what you're saying? Yes, sir. We, the jury, find the defendant, James Anthony Gray, guilty of murder on instruction number three. He said. They told me I did it, so I guess I did, but I don't remember. I didn't know how big a liar the police were. This case takes place on April 26, 2007, in Sadiesville, Kentucky. Sadiesville is a conservative town with a lot of horse farms. People hunt, fish, and many people own guns. A 911 call came into the Scott County PD. Jody Lucas refers to the couple as her parents, but they were friends and became really close. Jim Gray was 63, operated a flea market from their home called Gray's on Main. Vivian was 55 and was a part-time teacher. Roger Persley was a detective sergeant with the Scott County PD and was one of the first to arrive at the scene. Can you state your name for the record, please? Roger Persley. And what's your position? Detective Sergeant. 
I arrived at 8811 Cincinnati Road, Sadieville, Kentucky, at approximately 09:43 hours. The residence of Mr. and Mrs. James Gray. Upon arriving on the scene, I noticed a male body face down partially in the living room and the dining room in a pool of blood. The male victim appeared to have been shot in the back of the head. And from my investigation, uh, I learned he still had $480 cash on him and also a pistol. In the dining room was a female slightly slumped over in a pool of blood at the south wall of the residence next to a window in a gun cabinet with the door open and a key located in the lock. As you heard, Jim was shot in the back of the head and Vivian was shot as well. The police only determined that she was shot in the hand, almost like she was defending herself. The gun cabinet in the house was open and the key was in the lock. Jim had $480 on him, so they didn't know what the motive was at the time. There were also bullet casings found on the floor and blood spatter in the wall. While the police were going through the house, they said the house was very cluttered and almost hoarder-like, so it was hard for their investigation. There was no forced entry and robbery didn't appear to have been the motive. The police did find out that the Grays had a son named Anthony. The police began to focus on Anthony, especially after learning that he was estranged from his parents. Jody didn't know about Anthony right away either. I didn't know they had a son until two years into my relationship with them. Anthony worked in Lexington. He was a mechanic. Uh, worked on uh, four trucks is was primarily what he did. I first met Anthony in 2006. I thought of him like Vivian thought of him because I had heard her talk about him and I didn't have much use for him. I ignored him. Two hours after Jim and Vivian were found dead, Anthony got a phone call at work. When Anthony arrived at his parents' home, he didn't show any emotion and didn't ask what happened. The police later said they focused on Anthony because of his lack of emotion. Many neighbors also said that Anthony didn't show emotion. Did you speak to the defendant at the crime scene? Yes, I did. During that uh, conversation, did he ask how his mother was? No, sir, he didn't. Did he ask where she was? No, sir, he did not. Did he ask how his father had died? No, sir, he did not. Did he ask what had happened? No, sir, he did not. Did he ask when it happened? No, sir, he did not. Can you describe his demeanor? At the time I was speaking with him, he didn't show any emotion. 
When you got to the house, did you see the defendant, um, Anthony Gray, there at the scene? Yeah, he showed up a little while after we did. Did you talk to him at all, or did he talk to you? Yeah, uh, we talked for a few minutes, and uh, the one thing I remember him saying was he'd never have to work again. I kept saying I was sorry to him, and he never really said anything. And then he said, uh, it looks like I'll never have to work another day in my life. I need to get over to the store and find out who owes dad money and start collecting. This is the first in many mistakes that would go on to happen in this case. But the crime scene was released to Anthony just hours after his parents were taken from the home. The police were angry and tried to contact Anthony to say they needed to reseal the crime scene. Detective Persley and his partner resealed the crime scene and called Anthony to tell him not to enter the house. Anthony and his girlfriend at the time, Rosa, stayed in the house that night and cleaned up. Anthony was told that he couldn't stay in the house, but he did anyways. As best you remember, Miss Rowland, after you finished cleaning up inside the house, what did you do later that evening? We went and got clothes and stuff. So you went back to Carlisle to get clothes, and who did you go with? It was me and Anthony and my nephew. We went, got clothes, and then we come back to Mr. and James and Vivian's house. And what did you do when you got back there? Uh, there was tape on the door saying, do not enter. And I told Anthony that it's from the law, don't enter. said he went inside to collect some things anyways and just fell asleep. Rosa said they fell asleep in his parents' bed. I'm not saying someone is guilty for that, but who would want to stay in a home where there was just a murder, especially that of your parents? Again, this is strange. Anthony said he was always close to his parents. However, that didn't seem to be the case. Anthony got married when he was younger to a woman named Amy. They had two sons and they lived in a trailer on the Gray's property. Amy died just after becoming sick, and Anthony checked out at that point and abandoned his sons. Jim and Vivian took them in and gained custody. They had a falling out with Anthony after Anthony went to the state and made accusations against his parents. The boys were taken out of the home and put into foster care and eventually adopted. After this, Vivian went into a depression and wanted nothing to do with Anthony. Vivian even tried to send letters to the boys and tried to hire an attorney, but nothing came of it. They were shot to death in their own home three weeks ago. Now Anthony Gray and several of his aunts and uncles are battling over their $750,000 estate. The family is accusing him of stealing a safe from his parents' home. 
They say it held a will that gives their two grandsons, whom Anthony Gray put up for adoption years ago, everything. After the police went to the home after the murders, they searched the home. They didn't realize until after the bodies were found that there was a basement. In this home, there's a door in the flooring that you have to open to go downstairs, and the door was near Jim's body. Jody and several other people said that the Grays had a safe down there, but a safe was never located. Anthony said he didn't know anything about a safe. Anthony said he never went into the basement and didn't know anything about the will either. The state was over one half million dollars when they died. James and Vivian had talked to cutting him out of the will. Without a will, business, investments, property, all of that would be inherited by the state. Why did you go over to back over to the crime scene? Miss Jody Lucas Foot contacted me in reference to look for wills and life insurance policy at the Gray's residence. They asked me if they had a safe, and I said yes in the basement. And the lead detective said there's a basement in this house. Now, did you uh, find anything uh, that you hadn't uh, known of before? Yes, sir. I found out about a secret door leading to a basement. This area is on the right side of Mr. James Gray, the father's be on the right side of his body. They had already processed the crime scene and didn't realize there was a basement. And they went to the basement and come back up and said there was no safe. I was angry. At the time, Jody believed that Anthony had taken either the safe or the will after he was let inside after the crime scene was processed. On August 26, 2007, four months after the murders, Anthony is questioned by the police. Do you have a scenario of what took place inside the house? They got behind that. Can you show me what you think? I mean, he was probably at that. Uh, I'm guessing. He got the couch here. Uh, he on that couch. He lays on that like this and boom, it's his right pocket and his right hand. So when he came in, he got up. I know he got up. His hand was within two inches of that pocket. And everybody knows he packs a gun. So, you know, you come in the house, and Dad has got his gun right there. And I mean, he watches you when you come in that. It's his house. I mean, he's going to watch you. So he's standing there. He's up. When they come in, anybody comes in, he gets up. So he's got his hand across that gun. And he's talking to whoever it is. I cannot see him. Turning his back on anybody, he didn't know. I just, I can't, I just know the old man, he wouldn't do that. He was good with his hands. I mean, he'd been in the military, and he'd knock a hell, I'd be knocked out a couple times, no, no. <laughs> he hit you where you know what So everybody knew that Dad was fast on his feet. He's a big guy, he can't go. Nobody would mess with him. Having somebody trust him. I told him, I think you killed Mom and Dad. What, what, what happened to you? What made you do that? And he said, I didn't do it. And I said, well, then why are the, de the detectives telling me they have evidence that you did? I got to ask this question, if you don't mind. Yeah. 
If you did kill your parents, would you tell us? Yeah. Why would you do that? And guilt. Did you kill your parents? No, sir. Anthony said he didn't kill his parents. At his first trial, one of Anthony's ex-girlfriends testified that Anthony said he wanted to kill his parents. Anthony testified at his first trial as well, was, and he was asked about this, and he said he did say this, but he was venting. Tammy Kidd said you talked about killing your parents. Is that true? That is true. Tammy Kidd's telling the truth. She is, but can I add? Sure. I mean, I was just venting, just like my mom and dad vents to about me. We just vent. It's normal. Tammy Kidd asked you if you were um, if you were kidding. You remember what your response was? She says yes, but she I, said no. No. Well, I, I got it confused. I'm sorry. So when Tammy Kidd said you talked about killing your parents, she was telling the truth. I didn't mean it. Anthony was questioned again on October 20th, 2007, six months after the murders. This is going to make you really angry because it made me angry. He was told he needed to sign a routine document. For five and a half hours, he was questioned off camera. And when I got down there, they uh, talked about the signature and on and on. And then they asked me if uh, if I would step out for a minute, that they needed to talk to me about, you know, some other stuff. I told them many times I didn't do the crime, explained to them I didn't do it, had no reason for it, but they wouldn't believe it. They showed him a photograph that they claimed had been taken of his vehicle uh, that night near his parents' house. They told him of evidence of a, a witness. They, they told him of evidence of blood spatter uh, on his work uniform, of gunshot residue uh, that was found. None of this was true. And that's when they put pictures of my mom and dad that I'd never seen before. They were a crime scene where they had been killed. And they were shoving them in front of me, saying that I killed my mom and dad. But, uh, uh, I kept telling them to put them away because it was killing me, you know, to see them. Well, no, they didn't put them away. They put them on a the wall then. So that and when I looked up from the desk, they were on the wall so I could look straight at them. Next, Detective Persley got a phone call, which later he said was a fake phone call from a judge. The judge said if he didn't confess, he'd get the death penalty. After the fake call, the police left the room and returned 30 minutes later. And they come back in, and when they come in this time, they got this piece of paper of Kentucky State Police lab report, and it stated that there was DNA from my parents and gunshot residue in that car. None of it existed. It was fake. Okay, so you made a, a fake lab report up. Yes, sir, myself and Detective Willis. We create a fake, bogus lab report 
Same with DNA of his parents' blood, I believe, in the super. I continue to tell Mr. Gray about the witnesses stating that he left Tuesday night and the video of his super going towards his parents' residence and the blood on his uniform. Myself and Detective Willis repeated these statements for several hours over and over to Mr. Gray. Mr. Gray stated he must be crazy. We advised him we are not doctors. You can't hold a gun against somebody's head and threaten their life. When he saw an actual document that said you're tied to this crime, that broke him. Fear sets in, and when the fear got into me, I just, uh, you know, how can I save my life? After those five and a half hours, the police turned on the recording, which is when Anthony confessed. Jody said she believed the police and believed Anthony killed his parents, but now she didn't know what to believe. Anthony's first trial resulted in a hung jury. At his second trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to 45 years in prison. While Anthony was in prison, information started to come out about a man named Peter Hafer. Peter was a customer of Jim's Gray's on Main business. He always had money on him from the business. Dad didn't hide the money. He kept money in his pocket. When we'd stop to buy something, he'd pull out, you know, a wad of money and start taking $100 bills off and paying for it. He had large amounts of cash, and it obviously put him in touch with people that were less than above board. Dad, he was full of some people that was a little shady. I didn't know this. My mama called me on the phone at my house. I lived in Carlisle, it's uh, Kentucky. And she called me crying and saying that she was scared of some people that my dad was trading with. One of those people happened to be Peter Hafer. And we didn't get to talk about uh, an alternative perpetrator in this case. Peter Hafer made his living out of stealing from people. He is somebody that I consider to be dangerous. Peter Hafer uh, violently assaulted uh, my staff attorney in open court. His face was bruised, he was battered. Uh, he'd been violently beaten. The judge gave Peter Hafer six months for that. He has a lengthy criminal history, including multiple felonies, um, and violence was not something that was foreign to him. The police didn't look into anyone else besides Anthony. A lot of information started to come out about Peter Hafer. An informant, Harry Hoover, came forward and met with James Starks, a private investigator for the defense. They met on January 9th, 2017. I interviewed him at a restaurant here in town in the parking lot, and his information sounded credible. And I'm sure I'm the first person that he ever told anything to. He started making little hints and little hints, and, you know, when it would be on the news, you know, about uh, Anthony. He said, you know, the, the boy ain't, ain't guilty. seen the sacks of money, you know, where he'd been dealing with him, he, he kept telling me he was going into the safes, he was going to rob him. Yeah. He even told me he had a plasma cutter, a small plasma cutter. He talked about talking to 
the alternative suspect through the food flap in the jail and that the guards would let them talk through the food flap and not lock it down because the guards knew they were up all night and just killing time talking. He already had it planned out how he was going to do it. Okay, he walks in, knocks on the door, they let him in. He's talking to Mr. Graves. Said Mr. Graves was doing dishes or in the kitchen. And said, said there about, you know, five, ten minutes, you know, he said, I wanted to make you feel comfortable. And I'm like, where's going with this one? He said, let me see that, that 44 at 45. And when he handed it to him, he said, Alan, I just took it, shot him, and she threw her hand up in the kitchen and screamed. And he said, I think I blowed her three fingers off. Mr. Hoover had surrounding details or supporting details that most people would not make up. Jason Lindell, Peter's brother-in-law, and Ray Yarnell also said that Peter had bragged to them about the murders and said that he could get away with it while someone else paid for his crimes. Five months before the murders, Peter burglarized a local gun store. The police knew about Peter's connection to Jim Gray but chose not to investigate him. As if the police weren't already bad enough in this case, even more information came out about Detective Persley. He was allegedly only in the house for two minutes on the day the bodies were found. I think the lead investigator testified he was in the house about two minutes the day the bodies were found. It just doesn't make any sense. So we know that state police that were working the scene did not attempt to obtain trace evidence of the scene. It, that is correct. Something that is correct, so yes. And they did not attempt to lift fingerprints from any surface uh, within the house uh, the day the bodies were found, correct? Yes, sir, that is correct. The bullet in the wall, was that ever recovered? No, sir. To your knowledge, did Detective Willis or the state police or anybody else actually determine what lights were on and what lights were off in the house? Uh, from my knowledge, I don't know about this, sir. It wasn't done, right? I can't recall on that, sir. Okay. The police didn't obtain trace evidence, didn't collect fingerprints, and didn't take the bullets in the wall. They also decided Anthony was their suspect because he didn't cry. The police also asked several people, including Ike Gabbard, Anthony's friend, to help clean up the crime scene. The police insisted that the Grays were killed on Tuesday, April 24, 2007. However, several witnesses said they saw Vivian and Jim outside on Wednesday, April 25th, 2007. I'm an antique uh, junk dealer, and I bought stuff from Jim to resell. First of all, Exhibit 33, can you tell me what that is? That's uh, the car that I was driving that day. That's my car. And that you would be driving that during the, uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday. No, Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Double jury, if you're driving up, what you, what happened, what you saw? There's a little curve. And as I come around that curve, I see Vivian Gray standing 
on the, I guess you'd say the southeast east end of the building. James was in his store on that Monday and Tuesday. Then I saw James outside on the, uh, in the yard by, by the little garden. It was on a Wednesday because I saw the preacher next across the road mowing the yard that day. Mr. Kim, would you state your name for the record? Michael John Campbell, and I'm former pastor of the Stonewall Baptist Church. It's located on US 25, right across from the Gray's residence. On Wednesday, I would go up to either visit or to mow the grass. Uh, and on that Wednesday, I was up at the church uh, from about uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock to about 6.30, and I had been mowing the grass. When you were mowing, when you were gassing up your push mower, did you hear anything unusual? Uh, what I heard was I heard three shots. If the crime did in fact happen on Wednesday, Anthony was several hours away at work, and his phone records proved that. In 2016, Anthony's conviction was overturned, and he was given another trial. A central Kentucky man convicted of killing his parents nine years ago will get a new trial. Today, the Kentucky Supreme Court threw out James Anthony Gray's double murder conviction and said he'll stand trial in Scott County. The day that the Kentucky Supreme Court issued the opinion in Anthony's case was probably the best day of my career. Today, the state's highest court threw out the conviction, citing several problems in Gray's trial, most notably his 2007 confession to sheriff's detectives. The uh, Supreme Court of Kentucky's opinion, Gray presents several claims of error on appeal, and we address each of them. Most notably, he argues that the trial court erred when it failed to suppress his confession. He asserts the confession was involuntarily extracted through trickery that included the interrogator's use of false claims and phony documents. Because we agree that this confession was not voluntarily given, we reverse Gray's convictions and remand this case to the trial court for further proceedings. As of 2020, Anthony is still in jail because he couldn't afford his $50,000 bond. Peter Hafer was released from prison in 2019. He is dangerous and has no hesitation to use violence. As of the airing of this documentary, Anthony's new trial is set for September 8, 2021. This was a terrible case to get through. There were so many errors by the police and they had a vendetta against Anthony because he didn't, they didn't like how he acted. I hear time and time again, nobody knows how someone will act in a situation like this. Was his behavior odd? Absolutely, but I am leaning towards him being innocent. Could Peter Hafer have killed the Greys? Yes, and I actually do believe the informants. It's scary to think that, that a violent person is out on the streets and someone else who could be innocent is sitting in jail. My book recommendation for this week is The Wife Between Us by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pacannon. Summary. When you read this book, you will make many assumptions. You will assume you're reading about a jealous ex-wife. You will assume she is obsessed with her replacement, a beautiful younger woman who is about to marry the man you both love. You will assume you know the anatomy of this tangled love triangle. Assume nothing. So I was pretty surprised by this book. As the summary uh, said, you'll have certain thoughts while reading the book and then totally change your mind after it's finished. I was completely shocked by all the twists and turns. Most of the jaw-dropping moments at the end or happen at the end and towards the middle of the book. But I finished the book in just a few days, and I think if you enjoy psychological thrillers, then you will too. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As usual, please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere Blog Pod, and email me if you have a case you want me to cover or if you're enjoying the show. Please review my podcast or leave me a rating. I love researching, writing, and sharing my take on these stories with you all. I'll be back again next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's Crime O'Clock Somewhere.